Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pitney, and today I'm joined by Steve Garmouth. Steve, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Jared. So this is the first time that we've had a chance to sit down together, but I've known about you for a long time. And so uh, my brother actually uh, used to be one of your students whenever you were a teacher, and I guess were you a coach as well? At I was. I was yeah, a football and basketball okay, coach at Paragold. Okay, yeah. And so, um, and I've always heard great things about you. I really wanted to have you on. The reason I reached out to you is because I know that um, you have a pretty incredible story. It's one that's marked by hardship and, and suffering and uh, addiction, um, but it's incredible to see where you are now. And, and I hear from many people just how, honestly, God has used you um, to change the lives and inspire others. And so I don't know much about your story. I really don't. But I would love to just hear from your own perspective Kind of a little bit about what happened, kind of where you come from and, and where you are today. Thank you. You know, I grew up in Paragold, so I'm 59 years old. And I was born in Flint, Michigan, but we moved here shortly thereafter. Same place my dad was born, by the yeah. way. Yeah. And and I, I grew up on 7th Street. Back back in, you know, 7th through 11th Street, there was seemed like there was 200 of us boys. And so it was baseball cool. and basketball and football every day. We had three channels on the television and, and – didn't, you know, nobody said come in, just play all day. So you're active in sports. Uh, all right, yeah. Cool, yeah, man. you grow up, and, and I ended up being the youngest on the street, so I was pushed pretty hard oh, by, by Barry Davis and, <laughs> and, and a Neil Ainley and a Todd Dudley and some of these guys that yeah. were my heroes growing up yeah. that had won some state championships. Like toughened you up a little bit, right? Uh, yeah, either, either toughen up or get out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, uh, no, I grew up in Paragold and, and graduated from Paragold and, and graduated in 1980. And from Paragold, I was off to UCA to play college football. What position? I, I played defensive back. Okay. And so I'll speak a little bit about that journey because that, that was one of those deals. Uh, when I got my letter to come to UCA, I was so excited. And, and I'll never forget that August of sitting in that dressing room, and I'm thinking, what am I doing here? These guys are 6'5", 300, 6, 8, 250. You know, I'm thinking these guys are massive. And I learned one thing. Um, besides practice being tough three days, I'd never heard of three days until I got Jeez. to UCA and we're doing three days. But that season we went nine and one. But I got to run scout team tailback. And I was against guys, uh, Harold Lewis that played for the Eagles and Otis Chandler. These names mean nothing to nobody, but they played in the pros. They were seniors. And, and I was that kid that would get hit so hard and all I needed was to be helped up and patted on the back and get some more of it. But but year after year, what you know. What was that about, by the way? Like, that's a different mindset, right? Like, where, oh, yeah. where, where did that come from? Because I admire that. Well, like, let I'm me tell you. I'm the kind of kid, like, seventh grade, I was like, as soon as I got hit hard one time, like, I'm done. And I've always wanted to be yeah. you. Like, that kid so, was like, you So, I, I grow up with the, with these guys, uh, Barry Davis, uh, Keith Cox, uh, uh, Neil Ainley, Billy Williams, Todd Dudley, Mike Bevel, these guys that was ten and, the two back-to-back 10-0 -back teams, and I am the kid hanging around and they was you know that man you either gonna get tough or get out of the way really but I, I loved there was something about playing defensive back or linebacker and hitting somebody yeah you know i, I know what you see was I that early on though like i, I yeah i'm really i'm curious about that like as far back as you can remember were you always just kind of like seven yeah, eight you years can light old. me up yeah and seven eight years you, old. you have no idea where that came from or the youngest to have to fight you know keith's gonna yeah. always get me in a fight yeah. in Paragold, was so. it a, was it your was that kind of uh 
passed down, do you think, from your dad or your mom? Oh, or I don't know. I, I, my dad, my dad was, I don't want to go to the point, but my dad was an alcoholic. Okay. My mom was a very strong Christian lady, so I grew up in that household of both segments. Okay. Um, my dad demanded a lot of me, and I'll say the reason I got to UCA playing football because I played American Legion, I played for Gary Washington in basketball, and I played college, uh, high school football, and I played in track. I did all of them, but the thing was, was my dad was the was so demanding. I could score 18 points in a basketball game when I walk in. Well, that one free throw you really? missed, or I could go three for four in the Legion yeah. game and come. You know, you struck that one pit. You know. I thought, he's a wow. perfectionist yeah and i'm thinking can i not do good so yeah. he went to stanford years ago a little old school they didn't have football i thought i'm headed to uca and play football because he don't know nothing about this <laughs> game and off i went yeah so i played football at uca and, and uh my the second year I, well uh the second year i made the traveling team so that was a big deal. You know, you bust your tail every day when I, you know, if you ever seen that movie, Rudy, where you scroll in that oh, list sure. and it's like, wow, I am headed to Reno, Nevada. I've made yes. the traveling team. And yes. so that was an exciting deal. And plus I'm the only kid. I, I mean, I was nobody. There was a couple of us that went from Paragould, Ross Whitney and, and a couple other guys. But anyway, they come back home and I stuck it out. I, I will say this. I remember saying at Christmas, Dad, I, I think I'm just going to quit. We went nine and zero and nine and one, and I got a ring down there. And he said, "I tell you what, you just put them keys under that plate. You can just you can you can leave that car with me." So I took off and went back to UCA. I'll put the shoulder pads back on there. Yeah. So uh, my sophomore year, um, I, I began to get to play a little bit and got a half scholarship. My junior year, I started at I, well, the first game I didn't start. The second game, I got my opportunity, and the very first pass thrown my way, I picked it off. I mean, I don't know That's if that, cool. you know, if I just did the right yeah. thing. But anyway, when I caught it, I was like, look here what I got. Is that an adrenaline did, rush? It was a big adrenaline oh, rush. But anyway, my junior year, we we were good. I mean, at, at this time, Harold Horton had moved from the University of Arkansas under hopes and had come to UCA. Whole different mindset, whole different playing scheme. Ken Stevens had left and went to Lamar. And we, you know, that, that drive as an athlete, he pushed his heart. But one of the things he taught every day was togetherness and love. I mean, togetherness mm -hmm. on the football team. And so uh, I want to fast forward here. My, the summer before my senior year, I'm working at the highway department, and two days before practice, I crushed my foot with a jackhammer. So I go down here to Jonesboro and, and have surgery and get red-shirted, and we go 11-1. and one. I was so down. I was so down. But in the process of that year, Coach Horton – kept me on everything I went everywhere with the team flew wherever we went and um he took care of me so during the during the spring I was so excited to be back on the football field and I'll be doggone if I didn't mess around and break my back the third week of spring practice broke my L3 L4 so my first chance of drugs comes in 1983 I lay over in Memphis now back surgery was a big deal in 1983 that, that wasn't no, that you have the surgery and walk out. I'm over in Memphis to dealing with a, a doctor named Dr. Black in the Methodist Hospital, and he fused those vertebrae back together, and you lay in there three or four days. Now, this is the time before your IV drug. This is a, a straight shot of Demerol in the butt. And within three or four days, I'm liking Demerol. And I don't know enough about drugs because I had never done pills and that, and yeah. I had done a lot of drinking and smoking pot, but I had yeah. never taken pills like this or done that IV. And so... I knew that that, that that Demerol was something I wanted. Anyway, I get off of that. That wasn't no big deal. I wasn't addicted at that point, but I did. I always remember you that remember feeling. What it felt yes, like. I remember that feeling. Anyway, so Dr. Black had told me, he said, you'll start again if you'll listen to me. 
if you'll listen to me, you will start playing. You will play at UCA again. So in the process of that summer, I've done went from the first team to the fourth team. I'm thinking, I don't even know if I'm even going to get a jersey. They sure. had counted me out. And, you know, when you're at that level and we were ranked number one in the nation, oh, would even get a chance to play again. And so he told me what to do. I don't know if any, most people around here know Hunt Hill, but I lived on 7th Street, yeah. and I pumped them weights, not not heavy, light weights every day, and I sprinted Hunt Hill 20 straps every night. Every really? night I pushed it to the top with leg weights on. Anyway, wow. when uh, we got back down to UCA, me and Coach Horton talked, and uh, I, me and another guy, Roosevelt Turner had my spot. Roosevelt was from Mariana, Arkansas. He's a coach now. We were tight. But uh, we went – I don't know if anybody knows what bowling ring is, but we beat each other to death for three days for that first I don't position. know what it is. Yeah, you just line up. They call your numbers, and you take off running and just – it's like fighting. Okay. Might as well just say you're fighting. But anyway, within, uh, I don't know, uh, about a week I had that position. And I went from nothing to you starting. literally fought for it. Yeah, and I knew what it was to compete. I knew what that drive was to want more. I knew what it was to be a winner. And uh, the very first game we played Southeast Missouri State, and I picked off a pass, run it back for a touchdown. It's like, wow, all these things happening. And that was the year we won the national championship. That's incredible. What do you think drove you at that point to be a winner? <sighs> oh, I, I really don't. I could not understand. With me coaching, I tried to tell kids a lot of times, man, you got to give 100%. Everything that you've got, you got to put it on the line. It's not a, I want to do a little bit or, or go – you know, I see kids, they, they're in the weight room. Are you in here to look at yourself in the mirror or are you here to get better? You mm-hmm. know, there's a difference. And mm-hmm. so you see those things. But, uh, man, I was under some – I was some under some coaches. I was around some athletes. You know, five or six of those guys played in the NFL. So we knew what it meant to win. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we walked on the field, we knew we was going to win. Mm-hmm. That was the attitude. And so when you're around that many winners, it wears off on you. You surround yourself with winners, you're going to be a winner. Mm. So you're playing. You guys are winning. You're loving football. You have a good career at UCA. And I guess you knew at that point you want to be a coach. No, I didn't. I had a business administration degree, and I leave you. Now, at that time, you know, um, at the end of that season, I knew I was done. I tore my shoulder out with about a minute and a half to go in the national championship and put it back in and played with it shot up, you know, played with ankle. You know, in the 80s, and I'm sure they do now, you can play with Novocaine. Man, you just do something. You, My attitude was I've got to stay on the field. I had whatever it took because there's 15 guys to take your spot in about three seconds. Wow. So I, I knew the desire that I had. But anyway, I, I left UCA and uh, – I had I went back to finish my degree, so I go back. I coach, I'm a graduate assistant under Coach Horton, and he talked to me a little bit about uh, coaching, and had some opportunities to do that. But but I was I come home and got married to to Lantha Felty, and, and when I come home, um, I went to work growling engineering for a year, and Ed Teeter was the superintendent at Paragold, and I'll never forget that phone call. He says, "Hey Steve," he said, "I'd like for you to coach football for us at Paragold." You weren't I, looking for it. No, no, I wasn't looking for it at all. And I said, "Well, Mr. Teeter, I, I don't have nothing to to get in the classroom. I don't have no education." He said, "Well, go back to ASU and get it, and we'll discuss it later." And so I go back down to ASU and get the thirty hours. I already had a, my degree in, in uh, business administration, so I get my social studies degree. And what a blessing! I mean, I'm teaching social studies and loving it. But I remember and that's at what year when you that was in teaching. 1987. I remember this. I had a teacher at ASU, and I don't recall the specific name, but I remember her saying that she knew I was going to coach, and she knew I was going to teach, and she knew I'd been at UCA, and I always wore my ring. You know, I want somebody to ask about it. But anyway, you're, I was a kid. But she said, when you go in that classroom, you, be a, you become a teacher first, and you become a coach second. 
Mm. And I'll never forget that. I thought, I want to teach to the best of my ability. Really? And then the coaching to come second. Yeah. I love both of them. Yeah. Well, 87, you're stepping into Paragold. Yes. Are you teaching junior high? Mm-hmm. Teaching junior high and coaching, teaching, coaching senior high. Coaching senior high. Uh, and what was that like for you? Were you loving it? Oh, yeah. You know, loving it, throwing the football. loved rolling out and throwing it with the kids. Now, not only was I coaching high school football, they needed an assistant basketball coach. So, who do I get to be under was my mentor, Bob Painter. Now, I'm under this man, and he's, I'm thinking he's, this is the wisest man I've ever been around. Mm. So, not only am I getting to coach football, now I'm under basketball under him. So, I'm around great people, yeah. you know. Um, you know, there, Coach there was, Painter was a great man. Yes, he was. He, he was awesome. I miss him. Even, even in my mess, that phone call from him or he'd come visit. And share just enough wisdom. I, th- I thought, oh, coach, you, you know I'm trying. And and he was so straight up with me. He, that eye contact meant, I love you, man, but you got to do better. Wow. So you talk about the mess. Was that going on behind the scenes pretty much ever since college? Like, at what point did that begin, do you feel like, somewhat get away from you? Well, uh, leading up to after UCI I had three shoulder surgeries, the, the deal with the foot, the back surgery. So I dabbled with the pills. Mm-hmm. And somewhere around 88, I had something. Oh, let me back up. This is the one. I'll, I've never told this in the testimony. One of the things that happened, and I don't want to throw this. I didn't want to go to a revival. Mm-hmm. I didn't have no Jesus in me. I knew church. I didn't want to go to church. And so I was asked. Were you, you raised in church? And just, I was. Okay. I was. But, you yeah. know. But you I, didn't know yet. Well, I was that yeah. kid that thought, well, mama will get me to heaven. She sure. done, she sure. done praying hard for me, sure. so I'm going to. Yeah. I can live the way I want yeah. to live, and I did. But um, I'll never forget I was not addicted to the pills to the point that I had a bottle of uh, Tylenol 3 sitting up in the cabinet, and they'd probably been there six, seven months. So that wasn't no addiction to me at that time. Mm-hmm. And she kept on about going to a revival. Go to this revival. It's going to be good. Well, to me being good, I reached up there, and I got me three of them Tylenol 3, and I probably was the happiest man in church that night. <laughs> I know that. But I know that that feeling that come over me in that church, and it, you know that was that First little inkling of addiction, I thought, wow, that, that felt pretty good. I believe I can work on that. That was in 88? That was in 88. And so little by little, the hydro, the this, the that, the this, the that. And so by 94, I am a mess. It's, what, what was the, and I don't know if you would agree with this. Maybe you would because I know you had a lot of training around addiction. Seth Haynes is a lawyer in uh, Fayetteville, and he, he's uh, authored a couple books, Coming Clean, and another one's called The Book of Waking Up. And he said what he's discovered, he, had, he was an alcoholic, and he did a lot of rehab. He said what he discovered is that the question is never why the addiction, but why the pain. Would you agree with that? Like, is there, was there a pain? Like, I, when you were taking those Tylenol, like, can you, can you look back and pinpoint and say, <laughs> here was the pain in my life at that point, or the void, or whatever, that right. I was like. I, I do look back at some of that, um, and I, I will reflect back on my father's alcoholism uh, when I was growing up. You know, alcoholism in our home meant a lot of screaming, yelling, uh, throwing, raising the voice. And and if somebody can tell me that was different in their home, please yell it at me because I see it all the same. I've talked to too many that's in that same situation. And to watch my mother uh, go through that, and my dad was a good good man. He, he, I'm not throwing him under the bus. I'm just saying when he was drinking, he was he was not fun to be around. And I don't know if that was the pain or if I was trying to cover something up that I didn't know about. I still yeah. search this. Yeah. But as I keep on telling this story, you'll find out some of it. Because in 92, I found the Percocet. 
and that was the one that was really rocking me. I thought Percocet that at that time was one of the strongest street drugs of opiates out there. And, you know, you get to taking four and five and six a day, and by 94, I'm, I'm you know, I'm wide open. So yeah. in 94, now we've got, I've got three sons by now. Uh, things are going good. Both, you know, we've got the home, the cars, all hidden. You know, uh, we w- we were going to Southside at this time, and all my wife and three boys would come out of that parking lot, walking across there, and people. It's the oh, American dream, right? Yeah. From the outside oh, looking y'all, in, right? Lo- y'all look so good, and I thought if you had just been with me, Satan just kicked our butt before we come out of the house. We're miserable, or I was miserable. But my boys, they did not really understand what I was going on, but. The, uh, the depression that come with the pills, I'm drinking a lot, uh, smoking pot, doing everything, and, and, and not at school, but, but my nightlife was a mess. People how, are, how are you balancing those? You know, I played the same way at UCA, man. I, I played, I stayed out to one or two in the morning, went to class up the next day, go 150 miles an hour on that field. And the same lifestyle carried into to teaching. Wow. You know, I could go hard in the classroom all day and hit that football field and be motivated again. And it's like, well, I deserve a six-pack. Yes. A six-pack turned to half case, half case, 30-pack, one joint turned into the whole bag, you know, yes. little Coke here, little Coke there. And I'm doing all the things undercover and nobody knew. Nobody knew at that point. Nobody knew. And in 94 um, – I, I really went on a binge. I stayed drunk from school. From the time school was out in first week of June, I stayed drunk on whiskey and gambling every day. And by Did you the, know at that point there was a problem? Yeah, like, yeah. I, but oh, I can't I, stop. Yeah, I'm, I'm a total mess. Uh, Lantha's done. She, she's like, I can't take this no more. The boys, it's starting to wear on them, my kids. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of things that summer happened a lot of bad but finally i got i made my way down to a place called harbor house in memphis 30 days you know the superintendent inpatient, yeah inpatient facility yeah inpatient facility uh no jesus i promise you and but a lot of a lot of how how i could do it and so i'm in memphis and so the the way i got to there i wasn't gonna go to no treatment i, I mean I, I knew i had a problem but i've got this like all addicts do sure and, uh, yeah, I remember getting a shot up here at the hospital, and I woke up in my car, and my brother and my wife were taking me to Memphis, and I thought they was taking me to Greenleaf, and I'm crossing the Mississippi River, and I thought, this ain't no Jonesboro I'm going to. Yeah. And it, it's one of them deals of tough love, drop you off in the parking lot. If you want to get home, swim the river, we'll see you in 30. Yeah. And I thought, man, maybe that's what I needed, but I hated it. Mm-hmm. I hated every day there. But but the change that come at that point, I was introduced to a man because of a, a man by the name of Jerry Stairs from Paragould introduced me to a man by the name of Larry Grantham, who they had all been in AA together and got clean. These guys were in their 50s at this time, and I'm 33, and I head off to Harbor House in Memphis, and Larry Grantham played for the New York Jets, All-American under Joe Namath. And I thought that was the man that, that touched my mind and said, I'll, I'll listen. Mm-hmm. I'll let, you know, nobody, your respect. Yeah, no, no preacher, nothing was going to get me there. Right. But I thought, oh, I'll listen to Grantham. And so I get to Harbor House, and, and Grantham pulls me to the side. He says, I got a special interest in you, and I want you to listen to me. And every once in a while, he'd take me out, and I got to move his office. And all, I seen all of his big New York Jets pictures. And, his, he, and he told me, he said, I sold him a, I sold him a Super Bowl ring to keep drinking. You keep doing what you're doing, you'll mess up, young man. Anyway, day after day after day, that 30 days, I thought, dear, I just want to get out of here. I want to go home. I hated it. I hated everything about it. And I knew we had football practice. coming. The season had started. And uh, I'll never forget Grantham. The last day I was there, set me down. 
my wife was coming to get me, and I got my little coin. It's all, that's all I needed. It's like yes. winning the trophy. Give me this coin. I'm out of here. I don't care what y'all said. I'm done. And I remember Grantham set me down, and he looked me right in the eyes. He says, Coach, I'm going to tell you this. You've wasted 30 days of their time. You've wasted 30 days of my time. You've wasted 30 days of your time, and you hadn't got nothing. But I'll tell you this. You're going to be just like me. You're going to wake up one morning, and you ain't going to have nothing left. Wow. Well, you know, that did not stick with me because that, that – that just fell on deaf ears. It did because my my inkling of life was I'm 33 and what can this old 57 year old man tell me? Wow. See, I I can tell that today. Yeah. Because I get to talk to some of these younger ones and but it, it didn't it didn't ever register. So I come back home and and I try to stay clean. I tried to stay clean. In fact, they call it a dry drunk. Yeah. I was going to football practice in the classroom and 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 I'm I'm right back into the medicine deal. You know, I, I thought, well, that's my cover. I don't think I ever got clean on nothing. I've been high since I was 14 years old, probably on something wow. every day. But um, I get to, well, by, by football season's over, and we did good. We got beat by Magnolia in the state playoffs, and we had a stack load of athletes. And then we go to basketball season, and by Christmas I took my – well, somewhere in there I'll take this back. Me and Coach Weeks and Richard – well, the coaching staff, we went over – I don't want to name names. We went over to OCL to scout a game. And so I talked them into stopping at a quick shop in this Manila. Is in this is this would have been in ninety ninety four. Oh, ninety four. And so we stop at a quick shop. I tell them I got to get a, a drink, something to drink. Uh-huh. And I come out with a quarter beer. I'll never forget Bill Weeks looking at me. He's like, "Coach, what are you doing?" He knew. And I said, "Well, I just won, just won." And I drank that on the way home. And you know, like like I try to tell all the John three guys are addicts. We can't do one, uh-huh. not one pill, not one joint, not one beer. That one beer sent me to hell and back. In a span of from that point all the way to March, I was a mess. That spun you out. Oh, I was spun out so bad. Just just a mess. My my whiskey that went from beer to whiskey to a fifth a day, trying to teach and a mess in the classroom. And then an incident happened twenty seven years ago, March the fourth, and my life completely spiraled out of control and it got it got bad, you know, court court got tied up in it and and uh you know from there uh, from that situation uh ended up staying a year in jail um sentenced you know over a misdemeanor don't want to get into that part of the story but i get out and i get the opportunity to coach again i get a yeah i don't have no felonies i don't have no felonies and um the thing was is i get a phone call i said hey coach you want to come down here and try cross county we need a head coach and so they knew your story and everything yeah, they knew yeah. they knew the whole deal. I mean, this thing's done went coast to coast. It's I've got uh, Bobby McDaniel for a lawyer that dropped me for the Whitewater case. It had gotten so big, and so when we get through court and everything, I got out of jail. I, you know, they give me a year sentence, and I thought, surely to God, y'all let me out in six months. He said, No, man, you staying the whole time. So I stayed. What was that like in jail, by the way? Well, I hated every day of it. I did learn to play chess good. <laughs> you know, you got to learn something in there, and, and you know, you can learn. Did you, but did you have any like? Were there any moments where you're like? How did this happen? Or were you not? Was there not even any like reflection? No, was- no. I, I tried. You know, I had a lot of students in there. A lot of guys I knew. All hometown boy. You know, so I knew most of it. The new jail was there. Um, I did. I'll say this. I tried to read the Bible, 
Mm-hmm. And so I sat down one day and I started reading at Genesis and I kept on reading. And I had a pastor from Griffin Memorial tell me he come in there. He knew me well. His son and my son were best friends. And he got to visit and he says, Coach, maybe you get in the Gospels and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and study that for a little bit. And I thought, oh, man, I'm reading it all. You know, nobody could tell me nothing. I was so hard-headed. I wouldn't listen to no advisement from people of wisdom and knowledge. And I'm like, no, I got this. I'll just read. All I got out of that Old Testament was a good history lesson. Wow. That's all I got out of it. I didn't get no Jesus yeah. out of it, I promise you. And so I get out of jail, and I go work for John Blanett, Dr. Pepper, for a little bit. And, and John and Herb took care of me, and I had them in, as a peewee in basketball. And, and that's, you know, hometown boy, mm-hmm. that, trying to help a man get back up on his feet. Mm-hmm. And I go to Cross County, and, and I, told, I told my wife, I said, I, I don't want to do this. And she says, they want you to come down here. They want you to do this job. So I get down to Cross County, and on my resume, I had Frank Brawls. I had Harold Horton. I had uh, Ronnie Kerr, who was at Henderson State, and I had the head coach from UCA at this time. They're all on my resume, and they go in there, and that stack of resumes was about 40 sheets deep for that job. And I go in there and, and did that interview and told them what I wanted out of my life and what, what I would give them from me, and that meant a hard worker. You was going mm-hmm. to get that because mm-hmm. I knew what hard work meant. And about 20 minutes later, they come down the hall and said, we made two phone calls, and that your coach, Harold Horton, said, hire you. And he said, we're going to hire you tonight. Well, um, that was a blessing in disguise in a way because, man, I drove back home. Well, first of all, I signed a contract that night. I looked down to money, and I thought, oh, wow, I ain't never made this much money in my life. And back to Paragol we go. And so the next day, uh, me and my wife, we drive back to Cross County. And I look at that football field, and I thought, they need 40 bell of hay off that. That field hadn't been mowed in 10 years. It was a mess. The field was a mess. And so they call me in the office. They say, Coach, we forgot to tell you we don't have a team. I said, wow. I said, he said, but i tell you this. You go find a kid up at Vandale, Arkansas named Marco Robinson. You find Marco, you'll get all the rest of the kids. And I'll say this. You'll get all the black kids. I had the white mm-hmm. kids, he's, and I thought, I need that speed, man. I need that speed on, in the backfield now. So on a Sunday, I went to, uh, I went over to Skeeter Kale and got nine pair of cleats and about 11 or 12 Arkansas football magazines, and here me and my wife winding up through them hills down there in Cross County. And about half the way through that afternoon, I said, I am tired. I can't find where Marco lives. They told me where he lived, and I'm driving all them red rock hills up through there. I'll never forget this. I I'd, I'd had completely given up. I was ready to go back to Paragol. I thought, we'll just go with what we got. If we don't have a team, I'm still getting played. Terrible attitude. And I'll be dog if I don't come around that first next curve, and there's the, half the team right there. They're playing horseshoes and eating out. And I thought, well, there's the team right there. There's my Marco. There's my quarterback. <laughs> so here we go. I go talk to Marco, and, and what, a, what a joy that was. And so uh, they all show up at practice the next day. And they hadn't worked out, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, athletes, 6'3", 220 pounds, stand flat-footed and dunk it, 4'3", 440. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. thinking, wow, look at these athletes yeah. coming out. So we had 28 kids, and uh, our first week was uh, mow the field and run. We mowed that field. It was so pretty. It looked like a golf green when mm-hmm. we got done. But uh, the town come out, and we redid the stadium. And, and I tell this story because it's funny. We had to have new lights put in. We had to have bleachers put in. The school was behind me. We had the field looking sweet. And so we play Harrisburg. That's their big rivalry, like a Paragool Tech game. Mm-hmm. And that place is packed. And my superintendent was new, and he was from Mississippi. He had, he had uh, retired down there. So I have a gentleman about 55 years old that loved football. And he's standing out there, and they're doing the national anthem. He says, hey, coach. You got everything right, but you've got to put the flag up. I thought, oh, man, I had it all, and I forgot to get the flag up for the, for the game. But anyway, 
um, you know, I'll, we that, we weren't very good. That was what year? That was nineteen ninety eight. Okay. So you're coaching, coaching, coaching? athletic director, coaching, oh, loving it, man. I mean, yeah, all of it, and uh, you know, so it feels like life. You kind of put the pieces back together, right? No, no, I'm a mess. Okay, I'm, I'm still, I'm taking pills. I, 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 from the incident that happened in '94, so I can't, you still knew yeah. you were a mess. Then. Oh, I'm a mess. I didn't want to tell them that. I yeah. mean, but and my players didn't really know because I, I went 100 miles an hour. You know, just with them, that was the love I had for the game. And at this point, when you were back in the mess after what you'd gone through, were you thinking, okay, I've learned from my mistakes. Now I can still kind of do this stuff, but now I've figured it out to where I won't go back and repeat that same stuff. Oh, no, I had discovered crack cocaine at this time, too. So so by, by 97, I've, I'm doing every drug there is. Wow. I, and living and nobody knowing it. I'm sure some. I'm sure the Fed knew. You know, they, people know. Anyway, I get down there, and the first three games, we get trounced. I kid you not, I come home, and, and uh, you know, like 45 to nothing, whatever, and we're not in shape, and the kids, and I'm trying to keep them motivated. Don't quit on yourself. You ain't quitting on me. Don't quit on yourself. Be a winner, man. It ain't about the score. If we keep, if we keep fighting every game. And so I get home, and I'm trying to – I had a – probably too difficult offense so i'm watching alabama play and they line up in trips and i'm sitting there on the, watching them. i thought that's the game that's my playoff right there trips right trips left out the out runs a curl uh, out runs the a runs a out z runs a curl b runs a post i called it a a b c or x y z anyway i just called the place from the sideline i've got marco rolling out throwing it catching it running it whatever and we start scoring i could have run from mayor down there and won we're scoring 25 30 points a game now we're getting beat people are loving you though oh yeah yeah I, and and i'm i'm thinking what's happened you know we're losing and these people you know are thinking this is going great and the kids are coming yeah. out and the, the bleachers are full and the kids are loving it and you know even we were a friday night game for out of memphis the helicopter come out I, I, that was the craziest thing you know they bring a helicopter and, and do the game you know i'm thinking we're but you're not happy no, I'm not happy, and we're terrible. But it wasn't about that because by the end of the season, I get a DWI on Soma's going home at Jonesboro, so I lose my teaching license oh, because wow. I was on probation from yeah. the other incident. And the coach that took that team the next year took that same team and went 10-1. and one. So I beat myself up over that. I thought, that was your winner, man. There was your winner. Them kids, you could have kept on winning. But I, everything that was happening, I was messing it up. Nobody did anything like that. You're just so. living in shame at that point? Like, were you talking about like, oh, looking yeah. back and being like, yeah. God, man, like, yeah. I couldn't. Yeah. Well, couldn't and, and by then, by when when I lost that job at Christmas, I hated me so bad. From mm -hmm. from 1998 until 2016, I hated my guts. Every day was a mess. I lived in that misery for from 98 to 2000. So, let me back up here. Remember what Grantham said. Remember, you're going to keep on losing everything. I get a divorce in 2001, lose everything. I'll never forget. Ten years later, almost to the T, I'm sitting on a five-gallon bucket living in a house. With no t I've got a television, a five-gallon bucket, no furniture. I've lost my home. Jeez. I've lost my wife. I've lost my kids. I don't even have a dog in the house. And I've lost everything there was. And at that point, you hated yourself. I hated me, but it still didn't get my attention. See, the only thing I knew now was to keep on drugging and drinking because that's the only way I could survive was to block everything out that I'd screwed up. Well, it got worse, and but by 2008, I couldn't stay out of trouble. I hate to use the word fights. I couldn't stay out. Of, I couldn't stay out of messes. By from the incident in '94 and surgeries, and then got stabbed a couple of times. By 90, by 2008, 31 surgeries and about 900 stitches and staples lighters. I'm just staring at there. Just rough living. Yeah, just you know, and don't care. And well, when I, you hate yourself, if you hate yourself, like that's what people don't understand. It's like the people who are 
you said, you know, you don't like to use the word fights, but the people who are getting into fights are the people who are mean to others. They're typically really mean to themselves. Too. Yes, they they're hate beating their the self. crap out of themselves. Yeah, yeah, and you're just getting what's coming out now sideways. Right. Yeah, that they're already doing yeah. it here. So, so my attitude toward life was just a, a ball of hate. It, you know, uh, if you didn't like me, that's good. And I'm in my hometown. These people had loved me, and 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 I wasn't mean to those people, but I had no respect for nobody. Didn't have no respect for me. Couldn't look in the mirror. You know. So we we go on through there, and my mother passes away in 2015. And that was one of those deals. Um, she had had a stroke, but but that was a little bit earlier. But in June of that 2013, I'll never forget walking over to her house. The ambulance was coming, and and I knew now she had had some strokes and she's paralyzed. I'll never forget. Uh, they couldn't get the gurney down the hallway, and she's a strong Christian lady. And I remember picking her up out of that bed, laying her on that gurney. And as she as I put her on that gurney, and they're getting ready to put her in the ambulance, she looked at me. And she said, "Honey, I'll never quit." Quit praying for you to quit drinking that whiskey and eating them pills. And that was the last, time, last thing she said to me because she died 24 hours later. Uh, you know, that was tough. But, you know, just like most addicts, I sat through that funeral, stoned, you know, wiped out on everything. And then my, my, wife, my life continued to get worse and worse. What do you think you did? What? You said from uh... – I said it was 15, 16, 17 years. You said you're just like, you know, if you lost your teaching license to DWI, you hate yourself, your life's clearly a mess, you're sitting on a bucket, the, you know, kind of the, the prophetic word to come true. Like, you're going to lose your, right, like your everything. family. And you lost everything. Like, put us in the mind, for those speaking, in the mind of an addict for a second. Like, from the outside looking in, right, and you, right. you've heard this, people, why won't they change, right? Why won't they? Because on the outside looking in, everybody can look and say, this clearly isn't working for you. Right. You know it's not working for you. So hey, Help us understand. So what happens in, a, in, a, in an addict's life, whether it be alcohol or drugs, is you get to a point of the darkness is so deep, you can't see no light. You don't know any other way to live. The only way you can go is to start early of a morning with it. And if you're not using as a true addict, you're sick. It's the most miserable day. Like that physically, a person, you're saying Physically. Sick. Yeah. And, well, the depression is so great. That's why they do the detox. You know, you got to get a man cleaned up or a woman cleaned up just a little bit so you can talk to him. I couldn't come out of that funk. Oh, I could, I could be without something for a day or two and then end up miserable. But I knew, you know, you if I searched as hard for a job as I did drugs, I'd have been a rich man. So were you not working at the time? Oh, I worked everywhere. I, my best friend's Danny Hoskins. He'd put, you know, I'd, I'd use a shovel all day long. Just I'd, to be able to support your yeah, habit. Master's degree yeah. in shoveling, shoveling sewer lines and wow. did not care. You know, that was the attitude that I have. I'm going to get a paycheck on Friday, and I know it's going to be gone by Monday. And whatever happened, I had no goals, no purpose in living. I didn't have none of that. But you knew even if you try to get out of it, that's what addicts, I guess, they know. Even if I try to get out of this, it feels like at the time there's no way out. Right. You feel so yeah. miserable yeah, no physically, way. emotionally. Well, addicts can't see nothing. You, we can't see there's a purpose if you'll just clean up. There, you, we can't see that there's something better. There's Literally a better blind. way to live. It's a, it's a darkness. And, and before I got to John 3.16, I just thought, bad deal. No, that's the darkness of Satan. He blocks everything from you. Any good whatsoever could happen. See, also, the, the pill that I found in 2013, the one that would finally destroy my life, was Oxycontin and heroin. When I got to that point in my life, I thought, oh, wow. First of it started out, oh, this feels so good. This is the drug I want. Well, then I couldn't get enough of it. So fact, we're going to fast forward uh, to 2017. I have, since 
from January of 2017 to July of 2017, I barely come out of my home. For almost six months, I stayed. I stayed a recluse in my home. Now, I would, I would come out and run up to come and go and get a few Red Bulls early of the morning. But it was, I did everything. Completely isolated. Yeah. Oh, isolated. Satan's greatest, greatest tactic. Cut you out of the pack, man. He's going to chew you up. But there come a point there. Um, I was so miserable. And I, I always, even in my Bible, there's, there's certain scripture. I've wrote this date down. I had, a, I had a new Bible, and I'd had it for 20 years when I got to John 3.16. It look, looks like I've been carrying it for 40 years. That thing's written all through I, my life. Stories in that Bible now, mm. from dates to whatever, little things. I thought, oh, yeah. And, uh, but anyway, July the 11th of 2017, I'd probably overdosed a few times that week, and I'd found myself in a bathroom floor. And I'd been so opium sick throwing up and and by this time I'm throwing up blood everything's coming out by on blood and and my life is miserable but I had been so sick I had hugging the commode I had broke my commode away from the floor and I had you know from hanging on it and this had been a three or four day deal but on that July the 11th on a Tuesday morning I woke up and I was so mad I had a bottle of Jack Daniels in one hand and a bottle of Oxycontin in there that's how I passed out and I crawled myself up out of that floor pulled myself up out of that floor and I dropped that whiskey in the trash and threw them pills against the wall. And I wasn't mad at that. I was just mad because I wasn't dead. Because my first thought was, oh, God, i got to do this again. i got to do this day again, and I'm sick of it, and I don't know any other way to live. And, you know, that morning I sat and stood in that mirror at 6 o'clock that Tuesday morning, July the 11th, cussing Jesus so bad, hating him. And I remember saying, if you're real, you show me something because I don't believe nothing. I don't believe you. I don't believe nothing in that Bible. I don't believe nothing nobody told me because life couldn't be this measurable. And I said, if you're real, you show me something. Show me something. I don't care what it is or take me out of this life. And I went in my living room and I rocked and I rocked. And you know, the crazy thing, I didn't get sick in that six hours. <laughs> something about that. Nobody else would understand. But I don't know if I, I don't remember getting up out of that chair. <laughs> and remember how I said I'd been isolated myself. And at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a knock on my door. And I opened the shades, and I looked out as in who's here. And there was a John 3 graduate, John Adam Acuff, and a police officer, Jason Bolin. And I remember turning around looking up in the sky, and I'm like, Jesus, is this your answer? Is this what you're sending me? And I let them in. And as we stood in my living room, they didn't tell me a lot of stuff, except there was a place over in Charlotte, Arkansas that can help you, Steve. But you got to give all in. You got to give up, man. And as I began to just listen, we sat there and cried and we prayed in my living room. But some, a light come on. And every day, I didn't quit using, but I sure tried to taper back. And I went, uh, Jason had taken me over there to look. You know, I said, that for the first time, I thought, I'm riding with a police officer to John 316. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the other incident that had happened, I, I'm thinking, Lord, you know, I knew you sent Adam because that's a guy just like me that's a, a drug addict. But you sent this police officer. And, and Lord, is there something to this? Because maybe I need to change my heart also. And so all these things are going through my heart and my mind. And so for three trips, three trips, we went to John 316. And the second week I tried to get in, they wouldn't let me in. I was still so opium sick, and I went down to a place in Searcy. I went to a place down there, and I've never told this part of my story. I went to my sister-in-law, Brooksy Felty. It's got image realty, and I need, they needed $300. 
and I didn't have no money. And I didn't know who to go to. My mom was gone, and I was afraid to go. Everybody I went to knew I was been a drug addict. And they was like, oh, get, Coach ain't giving you no money. You ain't going to use it. Burn all those bridges. Yeah, and they didn't. My boys was, was done with me. My three boys was just so done. And so I'll never forget going to Brooksy's office and asking. And she says, Steve, I love you so much, but I don't know if you'll do right with that money. She really didn't know my intentions to sure. go to John 3, but yeah. that lady at, at, at Cersei said, you have to you have to have $300, your insurance. I had some insurance. They'll pay it, but you got to have the 300 I think I had 18 cents to my name, and I had a gas a tank full of gas. Wow. And so I go back home, and I, I'm hurt. Now, not not mad at Brooksy. I knew sure. I, she she was just the last resort, and yeah. I, and and I knew she loved me as so a, as a person. Love, helplessness, right? Despair. Yeah. Anyway, um, I go home, and I'm digging through my safe, thinking I'll sell some of my Indian rocks or or a couple gold something. I'll sell something and get that. And I pulled open an envelope. I don't know where it come from. It had three one hundred dollar bills in it. And I sat there on that floor. Wow. Just thinking, I don't know where this come from. I did, if I'd have known it had been there, it had been gone, it had been spent, it had been gambled, it had been drugged away, but it was under something. And I thought maybe it was from Christmas or something. I don't know. But anyway, I took off. Now, I tell this part because that trip, I had called that lady. I said, I am on my way. And from Paragould, Arkansas to that hospital at Cersei took me two and a half hours, maybe longer than that. And she called and she said, are you coming? I said, ma'am, I'm trying to get there. I said, but I can't quit pulling over and throwing up. I'd, I'd drive, it's so hot. Uh, it's so hot as July the 30th, I think. Anyway, and my first thought was, you know, any other time I'd get pulled over, somebody, some policeman would handcuff me for laying out in that median throwing up. But anyway, I couldn't get no help. I ended up in uh, Cersei, and they put, give me a drug to solve my, soothe my stomach. And anyway, from the next week, I got to John 316, and I didn't know. And that was what year? That's 2017. So I get in on August the 6th, and, and there was 38 guys for three beds. At that time, there was 150 men there. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to say, but I was prepared to tell Brian Tuggle, please don't send me back home. I'll die this week. This will be the week I die. Please don't make me wow. go back home. And uh, when I got up there, he said, well, Coach, he didn't call me Coach. He said, Steve, you're going you're gonna to sleep on the couch. We don't have no more beds. And I got in that day. And I don't know, you know, there was some things that happened just that first day. Uh, I'll never, my, my buddy's passed away now, Brett Gibson, but Jamie, mm -hmm. one of my best friends, he was there at this time. And Jamie brought, she said, you need to journal every day. And I've been journaling ever since. Four years later, I journal every morning. But I remember when Jamie said that, I thought, well, I'll start writing things down. She brought me a little journal and I'll never forget the, the first week I was there. I was so drug sick. I was eating about four or five Imodium ADs a day and no no other drugs. But them young ones, they say, come on, coach. And I'd, I'd walking up that hill and I'd lean and get sick. And y'all go. Finally, on that Friday, I remember writing in my journal, everybody has Jesus but me and I want what they have. I look back at that occasionally to know that that was so powerful. And, um, yeah, so six months later, man, my life began to change. And, I know we're going long here, but I need no, you're to. you're good. Uh, there was something that happened. You know, we talk about coaching in my direction in life. And so I did, you know, I didn't go to John three sixteen to find Jesus. I promise you that. And all of a sudden, next thing I know, I got Jesus all over me, in me, and everything about me. And I'm so excited because something began to happen because I got saved on that Monday night, August the 14th, and the greatest thing I said. I didn't do no big deal. I just said, Jesus, I'm all in. Yeah. Just take me, make me, break me, just use me. Whatever you can do with me, I'll change. I knew what it meant to have a lot, and I knew what it meant to have nothing. Just like Paul said, 
to have plenty and to have none. Climb that mountain, man. Climb that mountain with Jesus in the lead. And I didn't understand that part, but I knew something was changing in my heart. So I learned to forgive. I learned to look in the mirror and be all right with me. The hate began to go away. But there was something so cool that happened in August. I had a, I kept revolving in my mind, was like, maybe I'll get that chance to walk back out on a football field because I know I can teach a quarterback to throw. I know I can teach mm. a receiver to tuck it and turn it and turn up and score. I knew I could teach a linebacker to hit and point guard. I knew I could motivate and do all these things. And I kept, this kept going, maybe I'll get to do that. Maybe if I get cleaned up, I can do that. So that Saturday night, I'm laying in the bunk, and I remember praying. One of the strongest prayers I'd prayed was at John 3, Lord, show me my purpose. Show me something because I am just sitting here in John three sixteen. My life's changing and cleaning up, but I don't know what to do. Mm. What do you have for me? Lord, show me something. And if you don't want me to coach again, would you please show me so I can get this off my mind? Mm. And I'll be dog that next Sunday after Sunday service, we're sitting over there in Plasky House, and I've got a guy, his son's in there, and his name's Big Joe, about six, seven, four hundred 400 pounds, and he knew my story from UCA and all this stuff, and he knew I, I had been a coach, and he knew I'd lost my teaching license. And he looked over there, and he slapped me on the leg. He says, Coach, you may never walk on a football field again, but you can sure coach some young men to Jesus. Mm. And I got up out of my chair and walked down that hall crying. I thought, is that your answer? Because today I'll start leading Jesus. I'll start letting you lead me, and I'll just I'll just shine a light. Maybe I'll be able to help a few kids when I get back to Paragord. Because I didn't know what was going to happen in my life. I had no inkling to come back home and do anything what's happening now. Mm. But it just. Yeah, and I, that's what a lot of people refer to you as now, right, as coach? Yes, yes. Especially yeah. in the recovering addict world, it seems like everyone that I've met that has met you through, you know, rehab or whatever they, that's how they. No, you're right. It's coach. Yeah. Yeah, I tell some of them young guys, I said, so sometimes I have trouble remembering your name, but it's easy to remember coach, you know. <laughs> you, you probably had a coach in high school, but, yeah, it, it, it's, that's just that name. I had so many kids here, you know, that called me coach, yeah. and it just, it just filtered down. But, you know, I graduated in February the – I think it was 4th or 5th. I, I get that date mixed up. Anyway, Super Bowl Sunday. When I graduated, yeah, and I hung around there that day, they had a they baptized every three months at John three sixteen, and my life was changing. What 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 an exciting place to be at John three sixteen. One hundred and fifty men praising Jesus every day, seven days a week. Start out early of a morning and go to bed same way. That's the change of a man when when you start letting Jesus have all of you. It wasn't you don't go over there and watch television. And it ain't nothing like that. It's a camp that is surrounded by men that are changing other men. The new guys getting in to the next one to the next one. But, you know, even that day I graduated, they had baptism. It's February the 5th. That pond had been frozen. Man, they just, they just slammed 45 down in that ice cold water. They come out there with them hands up. It didn't matter. But uh, I got home, and uh, I told you that my relationship with my sons were so scarred. My youngest one at that time was coaching at Arkansas State basketball, and he would come to over, and my oldest one would come and visit, and my middle one wouldn't talk to me at all. He was so mad, and I don't blame him. I, I, I did it all. And I'll never forget that, that first week I thought, well, I'll do something about this. I, I've learned a lot at John 3. I didn't want to quit doing the things I was doing. So every morning I would call. I'd, I'd message them. I didn't call them, and I'd message them, Tyler, I love you. Alex, I love you. Coy, I love you. And I go on about my day. Mm. And after about a week, that first morning, that ding on the phone, I looked down and said, Dad, I love you. Mm. And then about 10 days later, bam, bam, I love you, I love you. That's two. 
And then within three weeks, all three of them, that's, we'd start our morning that way. I love you, Tyler, Alex, Coy. We share verses today. Love, I mean, does that mean we don't struggle? Yes, but today I'm the dad that can stand in the gap for my sons. Mm. Today it's it's an amazing journey. My oldest one, we went to the deal at, at the fairgrounds last mm-hmm. night, sat with him, you know. Uh, we share songs and worship and stuff. I wouldn't want life any other way than what it is right now, mm-hmm. Jared. I mean, this is, I, like I said, I, I never dreamed these things. I, if if I would have left John three sixteen and God would have said, this is what I'm going to give you these four years here, I wouldn't have been able to handle it. That it, Paul talks about that somewhere, that you couldn't handle all the things that Jesus has in store for you. Mm-hmm. That's why I say just slow down, be a good listener to what the Lord can do in a man's life. If you're an addict, get clean, clear your mind up, don't listen to others, getting that word every morning. Put your sights on the mountaintop and take it one step at a time because that journey's. I tell you what, if God took me home today, I can tell anybody this has been one heck of a deal. It's been one <laughs> heck of a journey, man. I, you know, but these four years, there's no national championship, no winning, no nothing that could replace what Jesus has done in my life in four years. And I don't, I don't want to go through this town for somebody to pat me on the back. I do not yeah, need that. Sure. My testimony in Paragord, Arkansas, is just hush, walk the walk, and live for Jesus. The rest of it will take place. Mm. I don't think, and, and usually I'm not at a loss for words, but I don't think there's anything really that I could add to that. Um, so well said, and even as I'm listening to you talk, Steve, there's just, yeah, things in my own life um, that I just feel, yeah, that I need to take away from this conversation, and I think I'll remember for the rest of my life, and so I'm, I'm very glad that you chose to come on here um, so glad you're willing to be vulnerable and to share. I know there are people that are probably listening to this or someone who's listening who knows someone who's in a situation similar to what you've been in. And I know that it's so easy to feel hopeless, like it's all over. There's nowhere to go. Like you said, it's just darkness is all that you see. And uh, you are a living example um, that, man, there's hope. I'm so thankful. You know, th- during all this talk, I never mentioned my, my shepherd, Brian Tuggle. He's, you know, I've had two people in my life that meant everything to me that I'd run through a brick wall or take a bullet for. And one of them was Harold Horton and the other one's Brian Tuggle. Those two guys. Brian gave me that chance, but but he never did say, you know, I was wondering for the first three months if he even liked me mm-hmm. because he don't carry on that conversation. And now he's that guy I speak to about every other day. He's he's my, you know, besides Jesus being my everything, he he's that guy just, you know, if he called today, Coach, I got a flat, I'll be there. Awesome. You know, we should have people like that in oh, our lives. It's, it's, yeah, you can't not have that. And I think that's probably, you know, one of the things I've taken away from this conversation, and I've, I've known it already, but just hearing your story just further affirmed of like, and like when the two work together, isolation and darkness. Yes. Right, when you're in darkness, you're isolated. When you're isolated, you're in darkness. And I think like the people that we do see come out of rehab and maybe relapse, we talked about that a little bit before we started recording, it's typically either they're around – the wrong people or they're just not around anybody and they're really isolated and you, and you feel so alone and you feel like I can't talk to anybody about this. I've got to try to figure it out on my own. And I think the best advice I could give to somebody and you've already said it is like, man, like step out of the darkness, right? I mean, be willing to come clean, be willing to open up and say, okay, right to God and to others. Like I'm, I'm willing to be honest about where I am and receive the help that I need to get. I would love to end with, um, rapid fire questions which we do in every single podcast and so i don't ever give anybody these questions before they come um and so 
we'll just there's six questions if you're okay with it. We'll I'm start good. with number Let's one. What was either the last book that you read or movie that you watched? Uh, the last book I'm in the process of reading is Scotty Pippen's new book because we oh, he roamed yeah. down the hall from me when I was at UC. Are you hey, serious? Yeah, he is my buddy. That's and cool, I say man. buddy, it ain't like we run around on yeah, campus, you know, but we were, we, you know, all of us in the dorm together. He Pip didn't know he was going to be a hero either. Really? So, but yeah, I read reading, trying to read that book. I'm not a good reader. Now, the one book that I read that I would recommend to everybody, and it was before I got was in the middle of a mess. It's called A Muscle and the Shovel. And a lady that's here in, in Paragold, Arkansas, from one of the Church of Christ, uh, I don't know if it's 7th and Muller or the Center Hill. But anyway, she gave me this book, and it's the most powerful book that I ever read. Really? About, about a guy that was working in a factory, and he's trying to get another guy to understand the way he looked at Jesus. In the Bible. Muscle, a muscle and a shovel. A muscle and a shovel. Okay. Yeah. I'd never heard of it. So, uh, favorite type of music or favorite band? K-Love. Not switching it. All right on. Um What's your favorite meal? I love breakfast. Even for dinner? I could eat breakfast. Yeah. I could eat a pound of bacon a day. Yes, I'm a bacon man. I'm with you too. Every morning I am uh, three pieces of bacon and two scrambled eggs. I found my favorite little restaurant on my way to work every morning, Jordan's Quick Shop at Brooklyn. I stop in there and get 10 pieces of bacon and a biscuit and take it to work and start my day with it. Yeah. I've never got bacon from there. I have to give it a shot. Yes. Is it crispy? Yes. Okay, that's the way I like my bacon. Um, what's currently on your nightstand? The lamp. <laughs> Keep it simple. Yeah, the remote control. But I don't have, so when I got home from John 316, I, I canceled all my cable and everything. I have the internet. I give myself Facebook about an hour of a morning, an hour and a half of evening. I don't do, um, I don't do much television because I got the least of the cables. So I stay and celebrate recoveries every night, just about. And I, di- I didn't get into those celebrate recoveries so somebody could see me. It's just I knew I was single at this time, and, and my boys was, was grown and doing their life, and yeah. I thought, wow, if I surround myself with people just like me, I'm going to be all right. And yes. it is four years later, and it's it's a good deal. And Celebrate Recovery, is that basically, uh, it's kind of like a, a kickoff of AA, is that right? Yeah, uh, well, Celebrate Recovery is, is faith-based, man. Okay. I mean, faith, you, okay, yeah. so Thursday night, seventh, you know, The Rock on Monday night, Breaking Bonds on Tuesday night, or Next Step here in Paragool. Next Step, I have 150 yeah. tonight. There's a testimony. Yeah. Thursday night, seventh and Muller, Matt McDaniel's giving his testimony. That would be yeah. a packed house. South side will run 150, 200 on Friday nights. So I thought, Friday night, ever, look at all these broken people in here at church praising Jesus to the top of their lungs, hands held high. Lots of praying, lots of celebrating, hour and a half. Wow. Give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. So just an ordinary moment in your life right now that brings you a lot of joy. At the altar at John 3.16 on August 14th on a Monday night at 6.30. Mm -hmm. Last question. What is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? Family. My family, my boys, my three sons. I've got a granddaughter and a grandson. I've got two other granddaughters, um, My Alex's wife, Summer. So, yeah, just family. Awesome. I've never spent a Christmas like I have in the last four years. Mm. It's been good. Mm. That's a great place to end, Steve. Thank you so much for making space to be here. Thanks again for sharing your story. I hope that uh, our uh, lives cross path again in the near future. Thank so you, Jerry. Great encouragement to me. Thank you. And that was Coach Steve Garmouth. That is a crazy story. Yeah, I'm really glad you were the one doing the questioning because I had a hard time um, holding it together over here. Yeah. 
Oh, man. I mean, I could have, I felt like we could have stretched that into, you know, a three or four hour podcast. I mean, there's so many layers there. Uh, just like even one of those stories, you know, he's rattling off. It's like you could have spent hours. There were a lot of that. threads got put out there. I'd love to start pulling on. He needs to come back. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely, man. And such an incredible story of redemption, too. I love to hear about uh, the reunion with him and his boys. I mean, just having my own kids. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for all of them to live through that, but to see where they are now and to see how, man, he is taking all of this really horrific stuff that happened and rather than still letting it kind of define who he is and how he lives. He's really just uh, and been able to use that in a way that's now blessing others. And so um, I know I was greatly encouraged by that. I hope each of you were as well. Um, if you are still listening to this, uh, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for tuning into this every single week. Um, we are on different social media platforms, uh, predominantly, I think it's, it's Facebook and Instagram that we're most active. And so be sure to check us out there. Also, if you've not already done so, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That actually helps people to find us more quickly and learn about just the incredible people uh, like Steve and, and others in our city and just celebrate those stories and, and be encouraged by them. And so and we also have an email list you can subscribe to or, you know, at paraglopodcast.com. And so um, just different places you can try to find us. But uh, main thing we want to know as we uh, end here is just that we truly do appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. We hope that you keep catching episodes as we release those. And um, until next time. <laughs>